I wrote a piece over the weekend about why we did not cover the rally for Ron DeSantis and J.D. Vance. They put in ridiculous rules for journalists, like they would tell you who you could interview in the audience, which we didn't accept. Got a fascinating reaction. People thanked me, more than one, a bunch, for using the word fascism in it. I'd said, this is how you descend into a fascist state. Got a lot of people saying, thanks for doing that. Journalists are not paying attention. We are headed there. Interesting stuff. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with the cast regulars, Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and back from a week off, Layla Tassi. Layla, I hope you're rested and had a great time. I had a great time. Thanks so much. Good to be back. Yeah, it's good for you to be back. Let's start. The time was that if members of Congress wanted to vote on legislation, they had to get their keisters to Washington and do it in person. COVID changed that. Now they are doing proxy votes all the time. Which Northeast Ohio members of Congress have the most proxy votes, and what do they say to defend themselves in using them? Lisa. Yeah, proxy voting became a policy during COVID, and actually House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has extended that policy till October of this year. So, you know, that means that they can vote remotely. They do have to designate a proxy. They have to file an official letter about their inability to attend for public health emergencies. But what we're finding is that they're using these proxy votes for many other things. So they looked at the 16 uh, members of Congress from Ohio, Tim Ryan, uh, the Democrat from uh, Youngstown, was at the top of the list with 268 times he voted by proxy. He wants to make remote voting permanent, and he's used it on the campaign trail. So when he was out campaigning, he just voted by proxy instead of going to Washington. That's one of those other uses. Um, But that's much less than congressional members from other states. Uh, Don Payne of New Jersey is the champion with 890 proxy votes. Here in Ohio, number two is Anthony Gonzalez, the Republican from Rocky River. He voted by proxy 138 times. These all came after reports of threats to him and his family in the wake of his vote to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, He said, when asked about it, he said, well, that policy was implemented and extended by Speaker Pelosi without my input. Dave Joyce was number four, the Republican from Geauga County. He used it 67 times, but he had knee surgery, but he made a Facebook video complaining about proxy voting and says that, well, Dems just didn't bother to show up because of proxy voting. The I'm torn on this because there there is something to the debate that unless you're present to have the discussion, you're not as well informed. And I wonder if there's some middle ground where they could say you can vote by proxy as long as you've been present for at least one hearing or meeting when the merits of the legislation is being debated. You'd kind of hate to have a bunch of people that are never present for debate casting votes. I mean, the last thing we need in America is less informed legislators, right? Right, right. and But this policy will end in October, so we'll see what happens. But this all came about the Brookings Institution uh, got some data tracking the proxy votes in the House. And senior fellow Molly Reynolds says that it was used by Democrats almost exclusively from May to December of 2020. But then Republicans started to use it more after 2021. And they think that she thinks that that may be due to safety concerns after the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. The Democrats still use it slightly more than the GOP, but they're using it for reasons not related to COVID. They're using it for paternity leave, surgery, and 
staying on the campaign trail. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the argument that technology makes this doable and that I want to spend more time talking to my constituents makes a lot of sense. It, it does. To just stand on tradition never makes any sense. But but it also you lose debate if you're not present. I don't know. It seems like there should be if it's continued, there ought to be some requirements put in that you participate in the debate process. Otherwise, you're going to have lazy Congress people that never show up. Good stuff by Sabrina Eaton. It's an interesting uh, turn of events post covid. We'll have to see if they extend this thing beyond the fall. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We published a story recently about the best deals on fire pits and were shocked by a response from a Cleveland official explaining that they are illegal. Is that true? Is there a loophole? And what's the story in the suburbs? Is this the most violated law outside of speeding in Ohio, Laura? Probably. I mean, this is very true in Cleveland. In Cleveland, they fire pits are illegal unless you're cooking food. So that's the loophole. It's been that way since 1977. So always keep a hot dog or a bag of marshmallows on hand if you are using a fire pit within the city, <laughs> even though few citations are ever written, according to safety officials. It's one of those ones that they would maybe cite you if it was out of hand, if you had like a whole barrel burning or you're trying to burn a bunch of leaves or if your your neighbors are complaining. The, the rules vary in the suburbs. Uh, for example, Westlake prohibits open burning but permits small cooking fires. Parma, Brooklyn, Cleveland Heights can use fire pits. They must be 15 feet from a structure. Shaker Heights and Rocky River, where I live, are 25 feet away. I also like that in the Rocky River rules, it says you have to have a competent adult there. So you can't just like tell your kids, hey, go out and make a fire. The interesting thing it's com competent. Adult. You, have competent. To, you have to be oh boy. <laughs> the interesting thing was how quickly the city official came at us and sent brochures basically saying absolutely illegal. Can't do it, can't do it. So it was surprising. But it but it feels much more like it's a law that's on the books where if you create a nuisance they can use it. You use these laws to stop you. They, they, the, the argument is that it puts soot into the air in a city that's got plenty of soot already from steel plants and elsewhere. Um, the thing that never made sense to me, though, was in Cleveland, if you have a fireplace in your house, you can burn wood all day and all night and it's legal. But if you take that fire outside, it's not legal. I get it that the chimney puts that stuff right. higher up, higher up, but but still and it contained. I mean, it's straight up in the air rather than the smoke of a fire pit changes depending on the wind. Right. Although you're, you're starting to see more of these smokeless fire pits where you're not getting quite as much. It's it's still you can definitely smell it. I mean, I, I haven't heard people complain usually like, oh, somebody's having a fire. It smells so good. Right. It smells like fall. So but it if neighbors have asthma or something, or you're burning a huge pile of leaves or something toxic, then yeah, you could call and they could come out and stop you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fire pit user. I was very glad to see that I haven't been breaking the law all these years in my, in my city. I, uh, it's an interesting story. I think a lot of people were interested. These things are, I mean, on your streets, everybody has one. And Layla, you told a fascinating story one day about, it, that it's like a community event, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I don't know if I told this on the podcast, but yeah, there's a an event I've heard about in in my town, Bay Village, where somebody wrote an anonymous note on someone's front door, telling them that they thought it looked kind of trashy, that they 
pulled their fire pit into their front yard uh, and were using it, which, you know, I think people do from time to time in the front yard rather than the backyard. And because they were so offended by this anonymous snarky note, it became a neighborhood wide yearly event to commemorate the snarky note. And they called it like Bay, the Bay Burn or something like that. I got to find out what it is, but everyone does it that they pull their fire pit to the front yard on this particular day and they burn their, <laughs> they have, they light them up. <laughs> right. And and the, the other thing is, is in Halloween in many cities, mm-hmm. people pull fire pits out while they hand out their candy. They've become oh, it's so ubiquitous. Nice. So it's interesting. It was good to hear that this isn't largely enforced. It's really enforced if you are becoming a nuisance to people. Check I out love the story. The what, There's what? a really great quote in the story that says, I doubt Cleveland police officers have the time to stake out Home Depot when you go yeah. buy your fire pit. <laughs> Write the tickets at the register. <laughs> it's today in Ohio. What is it with the people who get elected to run Beachwood? We've had continuous controversy there by the people who think rules don't apply to them. And in the latest case, they actually say the rules don't apply to them. Something stinks in Beachwood, Layla. What is it this time? Well, uh, let's break it down this way. So Beachwood has contracted with this engineering firm, GPD Group, since 1999 for some civil engineering work. In 2013, their city engineer left and GPD kind of stepped in to fill that void. And since then, GPD has served basically as the city's engineer. They have Beachwood has paid the company a monthly retainer for those services, plus hourly rates for their architects and surveyors and, and other specialty staff. And Beachwood also contracts with GPD for design and administrative work for these individual projects like road intersection and sewer upgrades. And the city spends like a half a million dollars per year on GPD's services. But it's not uncommon for local governments to contract with engineering firms to serve as the city engineer. Other cities do it, and some even use GPD. So what's the problem? Well, Beachwood has a local law that says the city has to seek informal bids for any professional design or construction management contract that exceeds $25,000. And the winning bid has to be selected based on both quality and price. And of course, State law requires local governments to seek formal competitive bids for professional design contracts that exceed 50 grand. But in Beechwood, they don't conduct any competitive process, not formal, not informal, before granting contracts to GPD. Instead, when Beechwood needs a road, an intersection, a sewer project designed, the mayor asks GPD for a proposal that outlines the scope of the project and an estimated cost. And that's what they get. The mayor's administration reviews the proposal, they approve it, and they pay them whatever they want. So projects that exceed that bidding threshold never receive a council vote. So for example, a recent sewer project on Green Road estimated to cost up to $300,000 didn't get a council vote, and Beachwood's contracts with GPD Group have no annual spending cap. So if you thought all that was outrageous... Get ready for this potpourri of crazy reasons why the city says that's all okay, (laughs) because the city says that it can skip the competitive bidding process for each of those projects that exceed the threshold because they've already awarded the overarching annual contract with GPD. So there's no need to go back to council for a vote 
on any further approvals. The mayor is authorized to sign off on subsequent engineering projects within that calendar year, regardless of how much they cost. That's what part of their argument is. All right, but, but wait, 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 wait. Before argue- you go further, let's just point out <laughs> that's preposterous. That is not what good government's about. That's not what accountability is about. You have a council. They're supposed to vote on these things. That is a completely bogus argument. Now let's go to bogus argument number two. Yes. Bogus bullet point two. They they also say that their own informal bidding process trumps the state's formal bidding process on those individual projects because the home rule provision of the state constitution lets cities make their own rules. But wait, there's more. The city says that they're also allowed to then ignore their own city law because of the legal doctrine that says a previous legislature can't bind a future legislature. So in other words, they don't have to follow their old ordinance requiring an informal bidding process because that was passed by a council of yesteryear. And today's council has since approved this contract with GPD that says the city awards engineering work without using a bidding process. Think about the ramifications of that. (laughs) They're basically saying that when a new person is elected, none of the previous laws apply. So that basically negates yeah, charter even anything. It, it negates the entire <laughs> like city code, that. right? No, no law. That's and, right. and what's really ridiculous about that is the council isn't all elected at the same time. They're they're elected in staggered terms. So so what, that would be just chaos if all the new people that were taking office didn't have to obey any of the laws passed by the previous ones, but some of the people there did because they passed some of them. This is the dumbest argument I've ever heard made. You cannot say that. There is a law on the books. If they don't want to follow that law, the avenue is to they change have to it. Pass. They can't. Right. This is change the law. This is one of the and they never have. stinkiest deals I've seen. And what was hilarious was that they kept changing the, the argument. One was, you know, this is a professional service and we don't really define what those are. And so that's squiggly. I mean, it was like they were they were spinning a wheel with six or seven different explanations for what they're doing and then just using all of them when none of them are true. The beauty of it is, though, they're they're admitting by all these arguments, they are not obeying the law of Beechwood. They, they can say it doesn't apply to them, but they are admitting this law's on the books. They're not obeying it. That puts them in the jackpot. I would think that a true audit of this might find for some recovery because they're spending the city's money outside of the city law. Yeah. I mean, the good government sources who who Lucas DiPrilli talked to said that all of this raises red flags. It could lead to a taxpayer lawsuit. The director of the Center for Government Reform at the Washington Policy Center in, in, DC, or in Washington state pointed out that, you know, like you said, governments can't just ignore old laws because they were passed by predecessors. You have the, your avenue for that is to pass new laws. If you're If you don't like the old ones, pass new ones. You just don't you just don't, you know, steamroll them and and decide, you know, unilaterally that you're going to call new shots. Well, that's that's it's insanity. And you can't make one argument that your city code trumps the state code, but then you're also not going to 
follow your city <laughs> right, ordinance. Right. <laughs> well, no, the, you know, the, the sad thing about this is, is if the mayor had brought these projects to the council, they probably would have rubber stamped it. And, and so, the, so they're they're breaking the rules, making themselves look ridiculous, bringing more scorn upon this Cleveland suburb for for no reason. If they just went through the motions, they'd be fine. But man, I've I've rarely seen such such gymnastics of logic as they've used to justify violating their own city code. Lucas Deprile's story is on cleveland.com. It's good stuff. Take a read. It's today in Ohio. You've got to love a lakefront planning process that bubbles up ideas like this. What is one proposal for the huge Main Avenue Bridge if the Haslam Lakefront plan gets approved? Lisa, Steve Litt laid this out over the weekend. Yeah, the Green Ribbon Coalition and Big Creek Connects released a proposal with 12, more than 12, new ideas to connect downtown's mall to the lakefront. They want the $5 million feasibility study that's currently going on with the Haslam plan um, to consider. They, they, they say you need to consider more ideas. Uh, Bob Garden with Big Creek Connect says he's worried that the study isn't imaginative enough, so they came up with their own ideas. A big one is converting the main avenue bridge into a pedestrian and bikeway and building a new higher bridge over the Cuyahoga also preserving east-west traffic flow across the lakefront and the shoreway. That's a big problem with the Haslam plan because they want to reroute some of that uh, traffic downtown. Um, They also talked about a covered walkway from the mall to the Hall of Fame as part of any new projects, and also rerouting truck traffic from Whiskey Island to area highways to reduce the dust that blows onto the Lakeview Terrace Apartments housing project there. So uh, Garden and others shared this with uh, Mayor Justin Bibb, Cuyahoga County Leadership, uh, the Ohio Department of Transportation District 12, and the Greater Cleveland Partnership. The County Planning Commission Chair, Michael Deaver, said he has no comment, but he's glad for the input. He says it's really critical for this project to get buy-in from the public, and they really do want to hear from everybody. I, I love the idea of turning the Main Avenue Bridge into a Highline style park. It, it, that it's huge. It's it you can see for miles from the top of it. It's a it's a wonderful idea. The problem is that bridge is of the design of the one in Minnesota that fell in a few years back. Remember, mm-hmm. and it's very deteriorated. They they have to go in at regular intervals in a crisis mode and try and fortify the metal plates that have rotted away. So you wonder if you actually did this, if you converted it into this wonderful park, would the money still be there to maintain the structure that holds it up? Right now, the money's there as part of the highway funds. Would we have the significant resources required to keep that thing standing? And that's a good question. And I I didn't know this until I read the article that it's one of the longest such spans or the highest such span in Ohio. And I was or highest. And I was like, wow, I did not know that. It's kind of scary. I don't really like driving on it. But, you know, uh, Bob Garden said, you know, actually, none of this would be necessary if that whole land bridge went slightly to the east as his group said in 2017, you know, they had a green ribbon coalition plan that they released in 2017 that has that jogging to the east, but that got nowhere with Mayor Frank Jackson. 
but it could get somewhere now. And I think that's the coolest part of this is all of these ideas coming. And the idea about rerouting trucks is huge because if you've ever tried to go on that Whiskey Island Bridge, like it's nice, but there are, you know, like we keep, it's all piecemeal, right? Like there's still so many blockades to using the lakefront access that we have. So I'm so glad that these groups keep working to push forward new ideas. Agreed. Yeah, we ought to go back and revisit the stories we did the last time there was a crisis with the Main Avenue Bridge just to see if any work has been done since and where it stands. Because you'll recall, they went up, looked, found plates that were deteriorated away and were pretty worried about it. I think they closed lanes and put truck restrictions on until they could get up there and fortify them. Uh, yeah, just- the ODOT. Uh, spokesman in this story says there's, you know, all primary structural elements are sound right now and there's no timetable for replacing it. But yeah, whenever you're talking a bridge, that's a really big question to ask. Also, the price tag, because none of these have price tags on them. Okay. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We've talked about a shortage of police officers. We've talked about a dearth of homicide detectives. Now we don't have enough paramedics in Cleveland. Laura, what's the deal? Yeah, this is a problem. The Division of Emergency Medical Services are down eight dispatchers and 50 paramedics. They currently have 165 paramedics, 29 emergency medical technicians. Some employees have left because of the extensive workload. I mean, that is a tough job. Um, And also in wages, they're not getting paid enough. Some people are moving to opportunities like nursing, which are also having their own shortages. But this is pretty incredible. The department has not hired a single EMT or a paramedic this year. They had a class of 10 in in April that was supposed to happen, but only four applicants agreed to accept a job, so they canceled it. Another class is scheduled for October. And I didn't really realize the difference between EMTs and paramedics before reading Olivia Mitchell's stories. So EMTs provide basic life-saving procedures, and paramedics have far greater training. They can administer drugs. They perform the advanced life support treatments. And right now in Cleveland, I believe you have to move into a paramedic role within so many years. But to even get to be an EMT, it requires a lot of training and the city doesn't pay for that training. One of the biggest drawbacks to these jobs that people don't realize is that as Americans have become heavier, this is major physical labor. Because if you go mm-hmm. to a high rise where where you've got to get somebody down the stairs in a gurney, these people lift them and carry them. It's, it's, it's hugely laborious and hard on backs and shoulders and all of that. And I think that's one of the the reasons people finally stop because it's far more labor intensive than they suspected when they get in. If you think of yourself as a paramedic, yeah, it's about putting drugs and, and zapping people back to life. But when you start thinking about carrying somebody who weighs 350 pounds on top of a gurney, that becomes hard to do. Yeah. And they only get paid 20 to $23 an hour as a paramedic starting salary compared to 30 or 33 in the suburbs and a private ambulance com- companies. Now, the city did just start charging more for their runs, so they're hoping they can increase the pay. But still, that is not a lot of money to be doing thought, that kind of strenuous labor. I thought they proposed to charge more for a run, but that, that has not been passed yet. No. Okay. So, But they hope that that will, that will happen. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. During the first year of COVID, we repeatedly wondered on this podcast whether anyone in Cleveland leadership would step up with to a 
a plan to revive downtown if workers stayed home post-pandemic? Apparently, the answer is no one. What is the bad news in a recent study about the downtown cores of America's cities, Layla? And how are some of Cleveland's leaders pushing back saying, no, 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 it's not as bad as you think? Well, reporter Sean McDonald tells us that a study out of UC Berkeley looking at 62 cities across North America says downtown Cleveland has been one of the slowest to recover from the pandemic. We're beaten only by San Francisco on that list, believe it or not. The study used cell phone data to compare cities before and after the pandemic. It takes the number of devices tracked between March and May of 2022 and then compares it to data from the same period in 2019 and uses that to rank the cities. So visits to downtown Cleveland are at 36% compared to 2019. That's the worst among medium-sized cities in the study. Columbus, on the other hand, was at 112%, the highest among large-sized cities that they measured. San Francisco's recovery was at 31%. So Portland's was 41%. Detroit was 42%. Cincinnati and Pittsburgh's recovery were both at 54%. Cleveland as a whole, as opposed to just the downtown area, has recovered 72% of its visits compared to 2019. The downtown Cleveland Alliance say, you know, Berkeley is way off because the area they're considering downtown is not what locals think of as their downtown. Their data shows a a recovery as high as 77% in the downtown area DCA's analysis draws upon cell phone data, but also security card swipes at office buildings, things like that. So um, to your to your other question, I mean, local officials are saying that, you know, a healthy downtown economy is 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 more than that. It's it's a three legged stool. It's supported by residents, nightlife and commuters. And and right now, downtown's stool is a little you know, we're a little wobbly here. And that's mostly because commuters haven't fully returned to the workplace. And and that might be forever changed in that regard. I mean, the downtown restaurant owners say the midday traffic has has really evaporated for them. Unless there's a ball game, they just aren't getting that midday business that they once received when people were full-time in the workplace. And landlords are really concerned about the office market as they see companies really downsizing their footprint. There was a poll of 5,000 working age adults in Northeast Ohio that really bears out that observation, too. I mean, 56% of workers surveyed said they worked fully from an office or workplace, but only 36% of workers said they want to be in the workplace full time. And 46% said they want to work fully or mostly from home. So folks aren't really clamoring to come back to working downtown. But as far as nightlife and residents go, I mean, those aspects of Cleveland are still on the rise. I mean, there still is uh, quite a bit of room for recovery. And, and okay, uh, so city officials are saying it's so it's this study was an apples to apples comparison across the nation. The, the downtown folks are, are attacking it, saying, well, it only looked at one zip code. It didn't look at the zip codes where the other stuff is. But to get to those places, you got to often drive through the zip code we're talking about. And the restaurant owners dashed a bit of the rosiness that the others said to say that our nightlife is fully back and that the two other legs are there. It's just the workers. It sounds like a little bit too much protesting. The Anybody who has spent any time downtown knows that it is vacuumed out. And adding to that, because there are so few people there, there's there, crime has popped up. You've heard of crime in mm-hmm, public square mm-hmm. and in the flats and everybody's got a 
got a story about it. So people in the suburbs are more afraid now to go downtown than ever. There's, you know, gun violence all the time, which is bled into these areas. I, I still have, we have yet to see somebody come through and say, okay, there's going to be fewer workers downtown, whatever happens, even if they go back to three days a week, what are we going to do to make downtown thrive? And for two years, they say, wow, we need more bike trails. We need playgrounds. We need things for people who live here. Nobody's done a thing. And, and right. when you look at us, apples to apples, we look terrible. And as much as they want to try and pull the rug out from under that, the, the, the Berkeley used science where when you say they looked at, at security swipes, that's voluntary reporting. How accurate is that information? And if it's that accurate, you should share it publicly. I agree. I agree. OK, I don't know how I don't know how it'll go. We'll it's see. today in Ohio. We've got high inflation, but we have yet to see that hit the job market. Lisa, what was Ohio's unemployment rate in July? The uh, unemployment rate for July was 3.9%, and that's been unchanged since May. Um, we added 7,000 jobs in Ohio, so there's a total of 5.48 million Ohioans working. That's only 125,000 short of February 2020, which was pre-pandemic when our uh, unemployment rate was 4.6%. Um, the number of unemployed is 224,000. That's also the same since June. And the labor force participants participation is 61.9%. And that's the number of people employed and looking for work. It's so strange because usually when you have periods of inflation, it eventually trickles down to cut the job market, but we just are not seeing that at all. And there are now economists questioning whether we will. It's, it, it's, it's great that unemployment's low, but it's just strange with what's gone on elsewhere. It's today in Ohio. The legal troubles for Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson are not over, and he just might have to appear in court yet to fight allegations against him. Who says she is dead set on forcing the issue, Laura, and why? This is Lauren Baxley. This is the one civil suit that has not been settled yet. And she wrote in the Daily Beast, I believe, that she is not going to settle because she feels that Watson is not sincerely sorry and hasn't shown a willingness to get well in his settlement offers. And she has, says she hasn't felt safe as a massage therapist since June 2020. Her quote is, Watson still refuses to admit that he harassed and committed indecent assault against me. Any settlement offered he has made has been a dismissal of his evil actions. And I know that unless there is an author authoritative intervention, he will continue his destructive behavior. And you look at what he said to the media, and he's still not admitting any guilt. He says he's sorry for triggering people. He's admitted that he's getting counseling, but he said he's innocent. He never assaulted anyone or disrespected anyone. Yeah. It, I, if we, he goes to court, if he has one trial, it puts it all on front street. It puts him in a witness chair and it puts her in a witness chair. I mean, th this, mm -hmm. the, the, I think the Browns had hoped that all of this would go away. You settle all the civil suits, you, you come to terms on settling the punishment and you move on. But if this goes to trial, it, you're not moving on and there'll be a focus on this and national, it's a national story. And so I don't know, it doesn't go away. She seems like she's intent. She doesn't care about the money. It's about the principle, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't know what the offers are and we don't know 
what her mind would be swayed by. But this trial wouldn't be set to go until at least March. So you'd have it hanging over his head the entirety of the season, no matter what happens. And I, I see her point, right? I mean, I don't know what happened between the two of them. But if she's saying she wants an apology and she wants him to admit it, she, he is definitely not doing that. Well, and she was so bothered by it, she left the business. I mean, she, this, right. she had done run a business for 11 years and now she is afraid to be alone with a client. And so she's left the business. Interesting development. We thought this was coming to a close, but it might not be. And there could be more civil suits. We still don't know that. Okay. It's today in Ohio. We've gone long. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Mm-hmm.